Hi, this is your host, Jason Young. I'm a curious engineering manager here at Microsoft, and on this show, I sit down with companies that are on a journey to SaaS or software as a service. The companies you hear on the show could be at the start of that journey, in the middle of their SaaS transition, or already have a solution out in market being used by their customers. No matter where you are in your SaaS journey, we hope you can learn by hearing from industry experts. Today, I'm here with Brandon Weber, CTO of Basis Theory. Welcome to the show, Brandon. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today, Jason? Good, good, good. Um, so yeah, we're going to have a really cool conversation here today because I'm really excited about, uh, the, the products that, that you've been developing and, um, and basically the journey that you've been going through. So I guess the place that we should start here is, you know, what is basis theory and what products do you have? Yeah. So basis theory really focuses on trying to remove some of the compliance and regulatory burdens that companies currently have. So for instance, let's say you're a company you need to be able to securely capture like credit card data, um, but you don't want to deal with the requirements of, you know, PCI, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, trying to implement all the PCI requirements is extremely costly um, and time-consuming. Uh, so we basically take on all of that risk and the compliance burden on your behalf, so that way it becomes a really simple implementation for your engineers to get up and running really quickly while still staying compliant uh, with those things. Okay. Yeah. So for PCI compliance, yeah, you can't store credit card information. So, um, so you, you basically offload that to your, your company and then you can make sure that it is compliant. That's pretty nice. That's nice yeah. peace of mind. Cause it's really difficult reading through all the PCI compliance docs. Oh yeah, so absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what, um, whenever you were, whenever you were thinking about switching over to a SaaS model, like what, what first motivated you to go down that journey? Yeah, so a lot of it was really like customer driven. Um, obviously, you know, like we're in this kind of space of trying to like remove that compliance and regulatory burden for our customers. So, you know, they don't want that data within their own uh, ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. So because obviously then they would take on the uh, the complexity of like storing it and the auditing of that, and then obviously dealing with like encryption and key management, all the other burdens there. So by offloading that to us, obviously then we take on all of that. And then basically it's like, now it's not there their systems is not their platform and it becomes our platform. Mm -hmm. So now did, did you start out as like box software or was it like libraries that you would install? Like what did that look like before you were considering a SaaS model? Um, we've always kind of started off considering a SaaS model from the very beginning, um, mm. just primarily because a lot of our co-founders had a lot of experience primarily in the financial industry. Mm -hmm. um, so we they kind of already sort of knew this space and knew that, you know, especially like your small like SMBs, your small to medium sized companies didn't want to take on a lot of like that PCI burden. Now that dynamic does change when you start to get to larger companies, right? So if mm -hmm. you're talking to like a Microsoft, they probably already have a team of you know, experts in-house who understand PCI, you know, and understand like the requirements there. So the dynamics don't do change, you know, when you start moving into more like enterprises on is SaaS the only offering you provide? Right, right, right. Cool, cool. So whenever we talk about SaaS, I mean, I just for the, so that our listeners understand too, um, you know, SaaS or software as a service, like what, like, what does that mean to you? Uh, whenever, whenever somebody says the word SaaS, how do you think of that? Um, I think it's a little different than like thinking about like a product, right? So for instance, like when I think about it, I think of things like Snowflake, right? Which is offering like, you know, BI or data warehousing, or I think of things like Twilio, which specifically solves things like sending text messages or send, making phone calls, like automated phone calls or SendGrid, you know, sending emails and other services like that. 
which are like things that are more of like um, aren't market differentiators are not necessarily competitive advantages for your business. So you're trying to take like something that's like hyper complex, but maybe like a narrow part of your business. And you're trying to like outsource it to a third party that specializes just in that. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus like using something like uh, I'm trying to think like QuickBooks. Right. If you're using QuickBooks on, that's an entire product. That's not really like in my head, like necessarily a SaaS. So because they, they're trying to focus on solving mm-hmm. like big, broad use cases versus like Twilio, for instance, is trying to solve the problem of I need to send a text message or automate a phone call. Like that's a very like specific, narrow problem you're trying to solve that you probably don't want to have your engineers investing, building that themselves. Right. I have a problem. I don't want to have this problem. <laughs> I'm going to pay yeah. some some money for this other company who's an expert in it, who can yeah. do it better than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let them take care of this for me. Yeah, exactly. I like that. That's a really good uh, definition. So then it, just tell me a little bit more about the the solution that that you that you ended up building. Like what, you know, maybe some of the, the technical pieces or like what did what did that look like, um, you know, in terms of all the, the technology pieces and how everything fits together? Yeah, so essentially our, our product really kind of consists of like three main things in the journey. So there's the collecting the data, right? So mm-hmm. when you think about how do I actually capture that data in a secure way? Um, most people who've worked with, let's say you've worked with Stripe or maybe Braintree or one of those other payment processors, you're dropping these like mobile SDKs or like these like um, like a React component or something directly in your website or application. And then essentially what it does is more or less like creates like an iframe that like enables you to like securely capture mm-hmm. that data. So, so we have those things. That's like where the, some of our SDKs come into play. And then we also have the piece which actually says, now I actually need to store this information. And that's where we offer basically this uh, um, tokenization vault. So you can hit it directly through the API, or you can also use our those uh, form input captures to send it directly to us. And then what we end up doing is taking that data, we encrypt it, and then essentially we send you back a token, which is more like a pointer mm-hmm. back to that information. Um, now you can pass that pointer, right, that token around throughout your systems without ever having to worry about it being the risk of you know the underlying data getting compromised, the risk of um, you know having to worry about encrypting it, you know, and all that type of stuff. You can just store it in plain text in whatever data store you want. But then ultimately, you need to be able to like use the information, and this is where we offer a lot of different things. Like we have like secure compute environments that you can do things like file processing and image processing. We also have a, a proxy service which allows you to like detokenize it and send it to let's say. To Stripe, or maybe you need to send it to WorldPay or some other service. You could use it for like healthcare data, bank data, et cetera. And then we also have things like the, you know, one problem that engineers have is I need to be able to search over encrypted data. So we also offer capabilities like searching. And then we also have things for like, you know, compliance audits, like audit reports and logging and things like that. So you can pass that information back to an auditor and say, hey, you know, we were PCI compliant, we're NACHA compliant, we're SOC 2 compliant, et cetera, just for providing them that evidence. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. What I'm picturing in my mind, like I get, you know, you get a credit, a credit card statement. I, I don't get them in pay, you know, paper form anymore, but if if I look at the PDF, right, it's masked out. It's, I think what right. you would call tokenization where it's masked out except for maybe like the last four digits. Yep. But if I, if I want to, you know, get more information from my credit card company, I'm calling and I'm sort of authenticating, I prove who I am. And then maybe I have access to more information. So it sounds like uh, a really cool solution for um, really de-risking my own application, right? Because I, it, like, like you said, if if my database gets compromised, it's really like the last four of each <laughs> credit card number, which is pretty useless, right? Yeah. And even so, like 
the tokens by default don't mm -hmm. have any of that information in. Mm -hmm. um, but we also provide something called expressions, which are like, think of like a liquid, like if you've worked with like mustache or handlebars or mm -hmm. Shopify or one of those, they have that expression language. So you can define and say, I actually want to expose like the first six of a credit card, or like maybe it's the mm -hmm. domain of an email address, or I want to enable you to view the first name, but not the last name. So there's a lot of different um, use cases and you can actually customize those on a per uh, user or per system level. So you can say, you know, Jason, you have access to, you know, the email address, but I don't, right? So then mm -hmm. it's it's redacted for me, but it might be visible for you. So you can do things like enable your customer service rep to be able to verify the last form of social security number, but right. not actually expose the full SSN to them, but you could expose it back to the original customer, for instance. So. Okay, okay. And I assume that it's flexible too. Like we keep talking about credit card numbers and social security numbers, but those are just some examples, right? Yep. Like it could be any, any type of data. There's probably a ton of industries that you work with. Oh yeah, like healthcare data is a big one. Oh, yeah. uh, bank data, um, you know, as companies are trying to meet like NACHA requirements, uh, you know, you're starting to see like governments are starting to regulate this. Um, mm. You know, you got GDPR. India is just now uh, introducing new legislation for this. Brazil has some of this, right? So CTPA we have in California now. We're starting to see that spread across the United States as well. So we're going to start seeing a little bit more around like consumer mm. privacy laws and requirements as well around. What data is out there? How can you present that information? How do you have to store that information? It's starting to become a much bigger um, things, and those things disrupt, um, you know, business roadmaps, right? So how do you how do you meet those compliance faster? So I love that. So privacy is going in the right direction, and you are you're ahead of this. So <laughs> you're yeah. you're in a really nice place. I love it. Cool. So what what is your pricing model then? And, and, and it's not like we don't need to go into like prices, but what I'm really curious about is, you know, anytime somebody is using a, a SaaS model where they're, they're selling a service in this way, they have to figure out, you know, just like how they sell it. What is the unit of measure? Like what, how, you know, that type of thing. So how do you, how did you go about thinking about that? Yeah, I would say probably like, so right now we're, we do more of like usage-based pricing, like okay. volume-based usage. So mm -hmm. um, very similar to like, if you're using like Azure, for instance, right? Like you're charged based upon uh, so much compute, right? On like mm -hmm. an app service or so much volume within a database, like we, we approach it very similarly, right? So if you work with us, um, we have something called a monthly active token. So basically the idea is like, when you've interacted with a piece of information, it becomes active for the month and you can interact with it as much as you want. Oh. And then from there, then basically get the next month it resets so if, let's say you're a business that runs in like ebbs and flows like you're very like mm -hmm. seasonal like you know e-commerce um you might have a higher bill let's say in like a november right december but much lower in an off month right or um if let's say you're pretty consistent you might have a very consistent bill but it, it just instead of it being like you know per operation against system we just try to think about like how do we make that data as useful to you as an end user as possible by unlocking all the capabilities once? So right, and then data sort of hibernates if I'm not using it. I like that. Yep. So how did you, you know, how did you go about sort of it, figuring out that pricing model? What were you trying to make it simple on the users? Were you trying to make it simple for you? Like, what were the things that kind of you know went into that decision? Um, I think some of the main drivers for it is like when we looked at some of the other competitors in the space, a lot of them were based upon operations. So it was like every time you interacted with a oh. piece of data. And the issue was is now all of a sudden it constrains your architecture quite a bit. And what I mean by that is like let's say your customers are used to paying like 
one cent every time they interact with it. But you decide you found a different way to change your workflow within your system, right, to mm -hmm. optimize your architecture. Well, that might turn into two interactions, right? Well, now your customers are paying twice as much for the right. same thing. For us, we're like, well, that doesn't make any sense to pass it on for us to change our stuff. So we're just like flat um, billing model across the board, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we did, we did realize like, some customers obviously want to pay more um, bulk, right, pricing. So think of like in terms of like, you know, Azure, you can do like reserved instances, mm -hmm. you pay more up front, so you get a certain like buckets of information. We also have some customers who do more of like, hey, we guarantee a certain volume, so we're just going to pay a flat rate. Um, so we do work some of those things out with different customers, but it becomes pretty much like an, uh, some of that's like a per customer basis based on their needs. Okay. So that makes sense. I like your model because it, it, uh, it promotes security, right? Because if you, if you are charging per transaction, then it just, it promotes this idea of, you know, not like trying to minimize the number of transactions that you're doing. Whereas with your model, it's like, no, 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 do the right thing. Only let us manage most of it. Only use it whenever you need it. But once you load it, like we can, you know, you can make the best user experience possible. So I have yep. to, I have to imagine it's a very user friendly <coughs> way of, of, of pricing it. Yep. Cool. Um, and then as you were developing this, um, and, and, you know, really thinking through like a SaaS model, what were the big challenges that you ran into? And what I'm really curious about here, cause I hear about a lot of ISVs, a lot of software companies, you know, not realizing the, the amount of work there is on the business side, you know, maybe they understand the, the technical side, for example, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, business problems that they didn't really think about. So the big challenges that you ran into, do you think they were mostly business? Do you think they were mostly technical? Tell me about that. Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, so there's a variety of things that we learned over the last like two years that we've been building this uh, company. So one thing that we've been seeing, and this is a trend that we've noticed, and I believe this is true for a lot of SaaS companies that are uh, really popular. Like we see this with SendGrid, we see this with Zero, we see this with uh, Twilio, et cetera, um, is that your buyer is probably still a business person, right? It's probably still somebody. So like your homepage, right, on your website, probably still, and even when you get into like some basic use cases, like guides and things like that, still need to still call out like the business problem you're still solving, right? Mm. Because you need to be able, you have to be able to prove to that buyer that you can solve their problem. The person with the money. Yep. <laughs> but, and this is interesting. Yeah. We find that the champion is actually the engineer. Mm -hmm. So as we've built the product from day one, we really focused on being engineer focused. So really focusing on what's that user journey, right? The user being the developer implementing this going all the way through the implementation. So, you know, what would I expect as an engineer? I would expect open API, right? I would expect things like good, well-written documentation, clear use cases, sample applications, available SDKs, et cetera. And we made that a priority early on, right? As we build this. Um, so that was definitely something we focused on, but kind of having one thing that I would say we did learn is we didn't put as much emphasis on the inbound funnel, right? Of As far as getting more and more companies like inbound into the overall like sales process, mm -hmm. we focused pretty heavily on building the product, but we kind of neglected that upstream like funnel. And uh, that definitely uh, creates challenges because like you may have like 
10, 15, 20 really, really good customers who will give you feedback, but you may not necessarily be building the software that meets a much broader industry type uh, space. Right. Um, so like we've definitely switched that focus over the last um, six to 12 months and it's definitely been working out well for us. So. Okay. Now what about, you know, you have to, you, this is software that you have to keep running 24 <laughs> seven. So yeah. like any, any, uh, you know, challenges or, or pain points as you, as you went through that as well saying, in, instead of just this being like a nine to five thing, now you're on the hook 24 seven. Yeah. And that, that was another big thing that we, uh, ran into. So like the, our product really for our customers is critical infrastructure, right? Like, because we're sitting in the middle of like credit card transactions and we're sitting in the middle of like ACH processing and things like no that. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. So like if we're down, a lot of our customers are down, not able to process payments. So uh, a thing that we really focused on very early on was having to build like very resilient infrastructure. So going immediately to be like multi-region, focusing on like, you know, business continuity disaster recovery, like BCDR, um, focusing on like edge services, right? Like, so we use Cloudflare. So we really focus on making, or not Cloudflare, but um, um, uh, front door, Azure front door. Mm -hmm. So ensuring like, you know, one region goes down, like we can fail over to another. Like, so that was a really big focus of us early on. That's a very big investment from an engineering perspective. Mm -hmm. So we really focused early on on automation as well. So we use basically infrastructure as code and automated that, you know, consistently because we knew we needed to scale because hiring more engineers when you're a smaller company, that gets very cost, you know, costly. So we, we made that engineering effort very early on. However, when we originally designed how we wanted to lay that out, um, we didn't get it perfectly right. So then it cost us money and time mm -hmm. to go change that later on. But we're in a much better spot overall as a result. So, but would you, you know, if you could go back and change it though, would would you would you do things differently? I mean, I assume that you would still probably spend that time up front, right, with the the code automation and with just making sure that it's reliable and resilient and scalable. I assume you would still have made that investment. Oh, absolutely. I think I, I absolutely would. I, I don't know if I would change necessarily anything about our journey. Um, you know, I think one thing that I, I think we that was a super valuable lesson. And one of our co-founders actually told us this. He goes, build something and put it out there early. Mm -hmm. You're gonna like you're gonna get it wrong, right? Guarantee right. your 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 initial launch is gonna uh, be wrong. But one problem that you run into that a lot of like SaaS companies do is they try and get it perfect or they try and get it right. Mm -hmm. And getting it right is very relative, but what you need is you need something out there to get feedback, right? And so we built, I mean, we spent eight months building the first, you know, V1 of the platform, getting PCI certified, getting all that stuff in place. And we put it out there and we were wrong. And we spent another four or five months reworking, uh, you know, building parity in different parts of the system, changing how the flows worked, a lot of different things. But it paid off because that's ultimately what led to some of our first customers. Um, it also changed the way our engineers thought about building software along the way around like how we get stuff out, faster iterations on things, um, and then really focusing on like the end user more so than what perfect software needed to look like. So we, we have we just changed our engineering culture pretty dramatically there as well. So oh, I love that. So it's like <clears throat> start early. But make sure you you plan and automate upfront, but also be ready for that to change. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to balance these things, right? It sounds like there's no there's no right answer. Like the answer isn't 
you know, cram a whole bunch of stuff together and just shove it into market as quickly as you can and, and take it from there. That's, that's not the right answer. And the other answer, the other incorrect answer is, you know, don't spend forever trying to figure everything out without getting any kind of feedback. Like the answer lies in the middle. You want to ship it relatively early, but well thought out, get feedback, make improvements. It's all a balancing act, right? Yeah. And it, it's a little bit of like, it is like a bit of an art, right? So mm -hmm. there's not like a, there's not some clear metric, like this is good enough or anything like that. You just sort of mm -hmm. have like a, um, you know, I've been doing this for 15, 20 years. We've got several other experienced engineers on the team and it just becomes a feeling of, you know, um, we have very, we have uh, like, we call them two-way doors a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So what a two-way door basically, and it, the way we use it in our product definition a lot is like, can I make a decision, right? that if I, if I walk through that door, I can come back through the door. And so when we make product decisions mm. and we, we get in those tough conversations around, do we do X or do Y? We say, is this a two-way door? And if it's not, how do we make it a two-way door? So that way, if we make the wrong decision, we can still come back and go make a different decision. And so it's not necessarily all about answering every edge case. It's not always about answering every product decision. It's not meeting every customer's demand, right? It's not making the perfect golden software that's infinitely scalable. It's saying, what's the what's the backup if this thing doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. How do we come back and change it? So I think that's a really important question that helps you de-risk is like, what's our fallback in this process? Right. Right. And, um, yeah. And if it was software, like what's our rollback strategy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Cool. So how do you like what, as you, you know, as you build this, like, how did you think about how you wanted to scale this, right? Like, how do you deal with growth, especially not knowing necessarily how much growth there might be? Maybe you projected it. I, I don't know what your process was there, but like, how did you, how did you go about making it so that this would scale as your business grows? Yeah. So really what we did is we typically most companies are always trying to do like uh, ARR projections, right? So mm -hmm. like what's your annual revenue um, that you're projecting? And from there, we can back into pricing model. And from there, we're able to back into like, this is a projected how much volume we think we're going to have on the system. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we what we do is we actually run uh, load tests um, that run on deployments as well as that run um, on a regular schedule um, just to test the load of the system. Like, can oh. the system handle the load? So we use a library called K6. There's a lot of other ones out there like mm -hmm. Gatling and other libraries. Um, we basically run this and say, we're going to simulate what burst and normal load would be on the system. What's our metric, right? How much load can we handle? How much uh, utilization of the system can we handle from there? And then we really just have questions like, because one thing that's interesting, and I think businesses, again, they software companies get this wrong, especially startups. Um, they over-optimize, right? So they pre-optimize for like, hey, like we're kind of in that, you know, 50, 60% utilization on our current hardware. Let's optimize to try and get that load. But the reality is this, hardware is always cheaper than people are, right? And so when, until you're getting like really high volumes of transactions, it's typically cheaper to just throw another server at it for a couple months and then come back and then figure out what the bottlenecks are. So pretty common thing, like when you're talking like lean software, lean manufacturing, right? You optimize around the bottlenecks, mm -hmm. but you have to find the bottleneck first. Mm -hmm. So we've typically said like, what's a good enough metric 
how do we add enough buffer on there that gives us a little bit of thing? And then what we do is we just wait for the bottleneck and we, we found a few of them, right? And then what we do is we find the bottleneck, we find where that is, we go in and we just like granularly optimize a thing, get it better, and then it gives us some more cushion and we just keep working that way, right? So we just make small tweaks along the way just to improve the platform. And then it just allows that. us to kind of maintain our, our current cost, like our runway as well, so. I love that because you you are literally buying yourself more time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like exactly. you're spending more more money to just you know kick that problem down. But the the problem gets more well known like as time goes on. So it's it's actually a good investment to buy yourself more time. I love that. That's great. Um, so I'm going to ask you a, a similar question, but now on on security. Like, how do you now? I know that security obviously is at the core of your business because of the nature of the things that you're doing. Um, but what about the, you know, the, the architecture for your application? Like, how did you go about doing that in a secure way and building for security the whole, you know, across that whole journey? Yeah. Um, so there's a handful of things that we uh, focused on. So um, one, when we started building, especially since we're in the business of data encryption and, and we do tokenization and we have a lot of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Day one, the first thing we thought about was how do we make encryption and key management like foolproof for our engineers, right? So that way it's super simple to implement, super easy to manage. It's actually at the heart of our entire product. Funny enough, we open sourced our entire encryption, uh, how we do it. Like it's actually very blog list and it's awesome. down, on, down on GitHub so you can go download it. Um, but we actually did that. But the other thing that we focus on again is going back to automation. So our engineers do not have production access at all. So, um, from day one, uh, we focus on that. And basically the thing is, is we have change management processes in place. We run everything through automation. All of our infrastructure is automatically provisioned. We use CI pipelines to deploy everything. So that just ensures that like limited scope on who has access to those systems um, across the board. Um, the other thing too is like, you know, obviously we have, you know, strict networking rules in place. Uh, we have like things like we're using, obviously we're on Azure. Um, we use you know, their VNets. We have network security groups across all of our subnets. Um, we also have things where we're using Sentinel to automatically scan for anomalous behavior. We're using Security Center in there. Uh, we store all of our customers' uh, encryption keys within Key Vault that we use for encrypting and decrypting data. Um, so we, we have multiple layers, and we also use all of the Azure Access policies to restrict access. And so the so actually this is also the other way is like we started thinking about how do we scale this within our organization. And so the first thing we did is we, I mean, this was like in the first two months, we actually built an entire like infrastructure modules library and we just called them like secure key vaults, secure database, secure apps, et cetera. And what we did is we took all the best practices, right? All the things we expected in there and we just wrapped it into a module. So the engineers were like, Hey, I need to go add a database. All they literally had to do is just like grab the database module, drop in the name, configure a couple settings, and it automatically provisioned all the right networking, all the right access controls, everything for them. So that way they didn't have to think about that. So it made deploying that, rolling that out really seamless. So that way they didn't like solve it once and not have to solve it over and over again. So I love that. I love that. So it's like you solve scalability. And like I, I know I, I've dealt a lot with scalability. And I've worked a lot with security. 
what I never really thought about was how you scale security. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of obvious, like the first step, right? Because it's, you have to secure things on your own machine and then you have to figure out how you swap those things out in production. Mm -hmm. But I never really thought about that next step where it's like, you're going from a multi-person team up to like a bigger team and you have to start to, to scale that. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that, uh, that you, that you had a strategy there for actually scaling the way you did some of the security components. I like that. Yeah. And we, we do things like, uh, secure code scanning, uh, container scanning, because we run Docker containers, so we have all of our normal container scanning. Uh, we also run things like Tenable for like internal network, uh, right? It does scans internally. We have stuff that runs scans externally. Um, and then we also, the other thing we do is we run synthetic tests. Um, so synthetic tests allows us to run tests across multiple regions, testing for different behaviors. And so we run that out there and it's constantly like every five minutes, just just coming from multiple different regions hitting our system. So it's looking for normal behavior, but it's also looking for anomalous behavior as well to look for things like, you know, um, latency times, like, is there weird latency? Is there some sort of weird network traffic and behavior? And so we, we added a lot of that stuff on. That wasn't like a day one thing. We've just slowly, like, what we do is we find pain points. Um, so I have this like mindset that, right? Like, how do you get your engineers to ship to production as quickly and with as much confidence as possible, mm -hmm. right? And I, I remember going to this talk, this was years ago, and one of the engineers, uh, he went in and they auto-generated all, their, um, all their, their entire production environment, and they threw away all the encryption keys and all the access keys and everything. And the driver, <laughs> and basically the engineers on the team were like, well, I need production access. I need to get in there. I need to be able, and there's like, well, why? Like, why do you need that? So they go and they implement something in their CI pipeline or some sort of logging or whatever. And then they would come back, well, I need this. Well, okay, let's go fix that. And then just removing the barriers. Well, mm -hmm. we started doing the same thing. We're like, hey, we run into a problem. It creates some friction. Let's go add some more tests. Let's go automate this. Let's go add that in. And we wait for the pain to happen, and then we go automate it. And then we wait for the pain and go automate it. But the having that culture, building that engineering culture, now we have to the point where, you know, I literally, like, we just hired two engineers about two weeks ago they were shipping code to production within three days of starting and building that culture where you have engineers where there's enough safety in the process where they can go and they can contribute and they can deploy to production that quickly after starting means that we have the right controls in place. We have the right security Absolutely. checks in place, the right tests in place. That's really important when you're an early stage company to scale because in a startup, right? In an early stage company, money may not necessarily be your biggest train people and time your biggest constraints, right? You know, big enterprise project may run for three, six, 12 months in a startup. That's the death of your company, mm -hmm. right? So you have to think very early on or what are the things that scale, find where those bottlenecks are, figure out how you automate them so that way you can scale um, as your company grows. Mm -hmm. I like your phrase in there with confidence, right? Yeah. Because that is the difference between a happy engineer and a non-happy engineer, right? Like they, if there's ambiguity, if they're writing code, I mean, those were always the worst experiences in my career is I'm going to write some code and then maybe I have to wait forever to see like, is my code valid? Like, uh, you know, what's going to happen with this? <laughs> you just sort of throw it over the fence and then hope for the best. So I love that with confidence piece because it just it makes it so that you can you can write your code in a and just be a be very productive and get that feedback cycle. I love it. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. Um, 
I, anything else that you wanted to make sure that we uh, that we covered here that I didn't ask that I, you were dying for me to ask? You know, I think one thing that I think a lot of this is a, a challenge. I think that especially when you're when you're a SaaS company, right? You're hiring engineers. One of the things that I think a lot of engineers, when they come from other companies that are typically like, I am a I'm a developer, like let's say at a big enterprise, or I'm a developer working on like a product, but you're now you're switching to a SaaS mm -hmm. is you're a lot closer to the end user than you normally are. And that's a really hard change for engineers to, to shift their mind to. So a lot of them think about like, how do I architect my system? How do I think about the API contract? How do I think about, right? And they're really focused on the implementation details. But the big challenge that we've ran into is like, how do we get our engineers, our team, everyone essentially becomes a developer relations engineer. Everyone becomes a developer evangelist engineer. Everyone is implementing and building on our own mm -hmm. product. You have to think about the end user. You have to think about the journey they go through, the experience, the friction points, et cetera. And that's a challenge I think a lot of companies really like. You have to ingrain that in your company culture early on when you're a SaaS company, because it matters so much, right? So here, here's the difference between not focusing on it and focusing on it. When we as a company did not focus on that developer experience, we did not think about the dev docs, the guides, the step-by-step, -step, how do I go from my, the landing page to I have something up and running? When we did not focus on that, the implementation that our end users would say is like, yeah, it seems like they're developer friendly, but it still feels complex. So guess what ends up happening? the priority to buy us and implement us goes out three, six plus months. Right. When you focus on the experience and you're like, oh, wow, this looks like I could probably get something working and I could maybe get something in production in a day. All of a sudden, the sales cycle dramatically cuts down. Now, all mm -hmm. of a sudden, your time to execution and implementation is now like 30 days, mm -hmm. right? But we had to really like almost retrain, rethink about the end user as we went through that. So I think that's probably one thing I would like share is like make that be part of your company culture really focus on the end user really think about their experience because like the product means less if you get more people using it because they'll tell you what they want mm -hmm. right so you really have to think about how do you get them to implement as fast as possible so i love that i've heard that described as like five minute to five minutes to wow or yeah, exactly. you know insert insert some other low number <laughs> yeah exactly. depending on what you're what industry you're in very cool. Very cool. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about, you know, your business, the products, where, uh, where can people find, uh, find your company What's the uh, web address? Yeah. So we're basistheory.com. Um, okay. you could search for us, uh, either type that in or whatever. Um, we have dev docs, SDKs, guides, example apps, a whole bunch of stuff. Our platform's free to sign up and get running with right away. So you don't need a credit card or anything like that to, kick the tires and mm -hmm. uh, always happy to learn more about data people's data. I, I, I love data security. This is a thing I'm passionate about. I want to make it as simple as possible for engineers across the world, right? Regardless of compliance or security space you're in or anything like, I just really want to solve this problem for the average engineer. So. Right. And the average engineer doesn't want to, doesn't want to deal with this. So yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. And then where can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Uh, I'm, I'm not big on social media, but I am on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, so definitely uh, check, yeah, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. And uh, okay. I think it's just Brandon hyphen Weber is the handle or whatever. So, okay. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for uh, coming in here and talking about basis theory. Awesome. Thanks so much.